thank you all so much for praying for me. I truly believe that in ministry we are only significant in our, we only have influence insofar as we are connected to the power source, and I have felt your prayers this week. Uh, it's been a crazy week with, I knew when Katie asked me to teach that I thought, okay, well that means my kids are going to get sick, and I'm going to have all kinds of things happen with work and family, and sure enough, it, it, all my kids were sick, everything happened just as I figured, uh, but the amazing thing about prayer is that we really rise above our circumstance, and that is what I have felt, and so I know that you've been praying, and I just, God bless you, thank you so much. I'm so excited to teach Luke. I always get excited to teach, but particularly I love Luke because if you know me, you know that I love telling stories. I love hearing them, and part of the reason for that is that I'm just naturally a curious person. When I was born, I, um, my, shortly after when I started talking, my first words were, what's that? And still, it's not that I'm nosy. I just want to know. I want to know everything. And I love this book because I always felt like it gave me more of the picture of what is actually happening. It connected me to Christ's life. Uh, when I first got saved, it was the book of Luke that, that drew me in. And I realize now that I've studied it that part of it is because he is a Gentile and I'm a Gentile, and that's why it made sense to me. And, um, and, and I love the book, but what's been most exciting for me is that having now studied the Old Testament and the thread, when I have now studied this, this book has so much more depth and so much more meaning, and that is my objective today and, this week and next week, is to tie you to this thread and to tie you to everything that we have been studying. And so that is going to be the emphasis. And today, I'm just going to talk about chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to look at the thread, and chapters 1 and 2 are so significant because Luke is going to go back further than any other historical text in the New Testament. He, every other one starts either the birth of Christ or they start at the baptism of Jesus and they start with his ministry. But Luke, in this hist historical account, is going to tie us back and it's going to connect us directly to where the prophets left off in the Old Testament and Malachi, and that's what we're going to see. So we're going to tie in the redemptive thread. We're just going to cover chapters 1 and 2, and then next week we are going to cover the entire theme of the book of Luke. So we're going to look at generalized purposes, we're going to look at discipleship, uh, we're going to look at what God is doing and what that means for us, and it's, I'm really excited about next week. Uh, but they're, very, they're two completely different structures, and so I thought, well, since this is a narrative, and really the first two chapters we're all very familiar with, um, we're just going to follow, the outline today is just going to be the characters. And so in front of you, have a sheet, and there's a few little things for you to fill in the blank if you choose to. Um, and I just want you to focus on the, the connection of this redemptive thread and then the characters as they're introduced. And if you do that and you just focus on that, then the historical facts that I pull in, the scriptures, um, they're just meant to give that part of the story weight, all right? Um, so some of the facts about this book we know that it was written by Luke. Luke was a doctor, and he is a very close, if not a best friend of Paul's, okay? So his writing and what he's addressing, he's hanging out with Paul as, as he's writing this, and he, so he's hearing all this doctrine. I mean, they're really good friends, and so that's who he's influenced by. Um, he is a Gentile, and we had a little bit of discussion on this this morning, but um, he is the only Gentile writer of the 
Bible. We're we talked about that in our Sunday school, and we're, we're pretty sure of that fact. I believe it was John MacArthur um, that alluded to that, and I, I just wanted to make double check. I know that he's like the smartest guy on the planet, uh, but, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. So he was also very educated. Uh, someone in our Sunday school class, or our class this morning, uh, Maggie, thank you, pointed out she works with doctors, and she said, I know this was written by a doctor because he's so meticulous in his account and everything that he's talking about. He's going through it, and he doesn't mo jump around to the next point. Uh, he finishes every single thought. She goes, oh, yeah, this was written by a doctor. And uh, I really appreciated that. Um, so Luke was written together with Acts. It's actually one story, and together they are 27% of the New Testament. I don't think I have to say this to you, but it was inspired. Every detail happened because of God's design in accordance with God's plan. And while Luke has several main themes that we're going to pull throughout the next two weeks, the one that we are going to focus on in this gospel is that this is a gospel that was primarily directed toward the Gentiles. We just finished Matthew. Matthew was focusing on the Jews um, and, and, and the Jewish audience and saying this is the, son of, this is the king that's going to take the throne. And Luke is saying... This is the fulfillment, the Savior for the world, and he has come for the world. He's come for the Gentiles. And now, before we get into the story, we're going to talk about the why, all right? This was really fun to study, and um, at a first glance, we have the main why because Luke is going to tell us. He starts in Luke 1, 1, and almost all your scriptures today, they are written on your outline, so you don't have to um, turn to them. You should be able to find most of them. Um, but Luke 1.1, we can read it together. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. All right, so who is Theophilus? Theophilus was, um, I believe, I'm trying to think back of my notes, I believe he's a Roman, uh, really important dignitary, and he wants him to have this, but um, something that the commentators said is that he, it's kind of like a, a book dedication would be today. All right, a book, uh, we, we, we write a book and we dedicate it to someone, so he's dedicating it to him, and he wants him to have certainty, but he also understands that this is going to be written to an audience at large as well, all right? So, so it's written to all of us. He's, he tells us that it's a narrative, but he wants people to know that they know that this has happened, and so he is going to the people around him, and he's getting a firsthand account, and he's meticulously describing this as a historian, okay? And so that is, that is the why. He wanted to write a story or, or write the historical truth. He wanted them to have certainty, but then we are going to find another why that I want you to pay very close attention to because we will pull this through all next week as well. And that is, um, according to Abner Chow, uh, this is, that's the, uh, he, he's been very helpful to help me understand this as well as I know he's helped Katie, um, is that we can understand the why this is book is written when we take time to look at the when this book was written. So there's two things I want you to focus on. The first context is what was going on within the church, okay? At this time, they didn't have the other Gospels written. Possibly Matthew and Mark were being written at the same time, but it's kind of like 
I don't know if you've noticed that one time I was at the Christian bookstore and a lady was, um, I, I told a lady, I go, you know, have, uh, all of a sudden it seems like all these books came out on this marriage topic. And she said, yeah, that's how it always happens. I've worked here for years and books come out kind of with the same theme all at once. It's a normal thing that happens at the store. I really couldn't tell you. So it's kind of like they all were addressing and wanting to get this account at the same time. But from Luke's perspective, it, it really doesn't exist yet. And so he is going to want to give the church a historical account of what's happening because at this time what they have, the books they have, are James. In the book of James, we get how to live. They have First and Second Thessalonians, and so they have eschatology. Eschatology is a branch of theology that is concerned with the final events in the history of the world or, with, or in, of humankind. And he has Paul's doctrinal books, all right? So he has Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians. So they have doctrine. And the church is going, okay, this is great. We know what to do. We understand that we have this responsibility, but how does all this fit together? I was raised Catholic, and um, I remember that I had what was expected to me. I knew everything. The, the moment of my life, um, I was uh, 20 probably, and I remember um, Henry Blackaby did Experience in God, and it said, Jesus is the way. That was so profound to me that, oh, the way to know God is to look at a person. It, I don't know why. It, it, that was the moment that I remember coming alive and, and, and going, oh, then I need to follow him. And that was how I got saved. Jesus is a person, and that is what, what Luke is going to focus on. So truth is, is a person, and we can't have theology with him. So the historical facts about his life mean everything to the church. And so the church at this time is saying, okay, we have this doctrine, we have what Paul's written, what does all this mean? And Luke is writing to say, Jesus is the way. And that is your first um, little thing on your uh, outline that I gave you. So that is the immediate context in the church. And the second is a greater reality that is going on historically. And we, having studied the Old Testament last year, all understand this. And I want to remind you that, the, that the, the Israelites right now are at the end of a 400-year silence where they have been given the commands of God. They broke the commands of God. God exalted them, but then everything fell. Their kingdom, the temple, Jerusalem, was taken from them. They were scattered to other nations. They came back. They tried to rebuild the temple. It was only a shadow of what it once was. And so they are, they are still sad. Um, at this point in time, it's actually Herod's temple that he's come back. He's currently rebuilding. They're displaced. They don't have a nation. They're feeling God has forgotten about them. He hasn't been talking. The last time he talked was 400 years prior. We're going to get to that in just a moment. And so... Um, they are like, where is God? What is going on? And they are in exile, okay? So exile is the main reality of the church at this time when Luke is writing, okay? And so what I want you to do right now, it's the only time I'm going to actually ask you to turn in your Bibles, but go ahead, just for the emphasis of this phenomenal thing, I want you to turn to Malachi 4.5, which is the last chapter and verses of the Old Testament, right behind Matthew, and it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, 
and he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then he goes dark. So if you were in the church, you are waiting on Elijah, and you're going, what is this going to look like? Elijah was awesome, and he had a lot of power. But, but, but who is this Elijah? What does he look like? And if you knew your Old Testament well, you would have had a clue of sort of kind of what it would have looked like, but nobody really could have prepared enough for how this, these events were exactly going to play out all the way through Christ's life, and, and, and we're going to get that story last, next week. But this is the last thing that God had prophesied. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, Jesus does reveal that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. He says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Matthew 11, verses 13 through 14. And so God is on the move, and he is setting in motion the entire next stage of redemptive history. And so now that I have set this background, we are going to jump right in where we left off in Malachi with John the Baptist, because that's exactly what happens in our text, all right? So John the Baptist, this is a huge deal. Luke gives a lot of attention to this man, and there's a reason why. Um, I don't know if you remember when we studied Samuel. I kept thinking, man, David is such a big character in the Old Testament. Why don't they talk more about his birth? I mean, they, you get so much about Samuel and everything, and, and, uh, and David, I'm just like, oh, man, I mean, I know that we get, like, you know, that he killed big bears and stuff like that or whatever he did, but, but I, I just wanted to know more about his life. But the point of the scripture and the, and, the, and the content was intentional, and the purpose and why there was so much about Samuel, this prophet that was actually inaugurating um, what was to come with the new covenants and the change in the dispensations is that it was what God was going to do. Okay, so Samuel was instituting a, a, a shift in the way that God was working. So there was a time of the judges, and then all of a sudden he's coming along, and he's going to work in this way through the kings. And, and God made Israel put their attention on this man. He validated him through miracles, things that, were pre- things that were performed to say, I'm going to do something new. And that's exactly what we have when John the Baptist is introduced. So there are going to be a ton of parallels, and I'm going to spend quite a bit of time right now talking about that before we move on, okay? So what I want you to grasp is that it's not as much about John the Baptist or Samuel, and, and anywhere in Scripture, it's not as much, like the Catholics got it wrong with Mary, it's not as much about Mary and that she was great and awesome, but what God was going to do through Mary, what God's going to do through Samuel, what God's going to do um, through John the Baptist, and that is significant. So that's your next little underlying point right there. So I'm going to um, compare John the Baptist to Samuel, and I decided to um, stick here for a little bit in part because Brian is covering this on Sunday, and it's, it's just, there's so many parallels, it's, it's just awesome. Um, but both uh, of these men are Levites, and they are of the same line as Aaron, who was the priest, all right? Um, they are also lifelong Nazarites. So why is that significant? Priests have a sanctifying influence, all right? God's purpose for them, and God is going to use these men to awaken and to sanctify hearts in preparation for what he's about to do. Samuel was set apart to work in a temple. John the Baptist, in a desert, but both were away from the influence 
influences in the world and where they were put was significant for what the Lord is going to do after them. So 1 Samuel 3, 19-20 says that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord does the same thing to the life of John. In this time, they didn't have TV, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have, um, you know, messaging and all this stuff. Testimony meant so much that we just kind of glance through it when we're reading scripture, but the fact that these things happened was about God spreading the news. That's how the gospel moved forward. That's how his work was shared. And so this was, this was very important. Both of these men were born to barren women. That was a way that God said, hey, Israel, take notice. I'm going to do something that's really big. God likes to work with the impossible. Or not impossible, but, but uh, things he makes possible. So just as Samuel prepared the way for the line of the kings, John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ's reign. Samuel set the stage for the Davidic covenant, and John the Baptist for the new covenant. Just as Christ is a greater king than David, John the Baptist is a greater prophet than Samuel. Jesus tells us later that John the Baptist was as great, was as, great as any that were born among women. The biggest event that happened to, the, to Israel in the Old Testament was when David as king conquered the land and they were living in it with the nations being blessed. So you remember, um, uh, so, so it's kind of like the height of the whole Old Testament was when they had, you know, the, the Lord brought them out of Egypt and then they're in the wilderness and he gives them the law and this is what I want for you. And they understand that it was all about them living in the land under God's blessing, blessing the nations, his people. He was the center. The focus was the, te- the temple. And all of that in one moment, it looked like they had it. All right. They, it looked like they had it when David had come in and he had conquered what remained of Israel, and he established this nation, and then they build this temple, and it's Solomon's temple, and it's grand, and it's gorgeous, and the Spirit of God comes down, and he's in the temple. This is God in his temple reigning. The nations are seeing this temple. It's beautiful, and God is being glorified, and the people are like, what God promised us has been fulfilled. And then after that, we watched as king after king after king failed. And their, wor- their end was worse than their beginning, and we're still left off there, but this was awful. And what is happening right now with John the Baptist is saying, I know that was big, but this, what I'm going to do right now, is much bigger. So that is the emphasis. So Samuel's life was a prelude to what God was going to do through the entire next stage of Israel's history, beginning with the establishment of King David that would ultimately fail, followed by the failings of many other kings, and resulting in the exile of his people who failed to love him. The focal point of Israel and the doorway to heaven was the temple. That was the emphasis. Likewise with John, who will be the prelude to what God is going to do through the age of the church for his eternal kingdom that has no end, and starts with an eternal, successful king. He will establish the new covenant that will be successful to change the hearts and produce godly offspring, resulting in a glorified church as a holy bride, as his kingly reward, and the doorway to heaven is a person, Christ. Yet while God established the ministry of Samuel, we watch in the life of David how he proves him to be inadequate for the throne, 
Luke, like the Gospel of Matthew, is going to point to Christ as the rightful heir to the throne. I love this part in the book of Luke. It's kind of like he didn't trust us to be the ones that started out to just break the silence. And so he has his right-hand man come down. And I'm not really sure what goes on in heaven and who really is his right-hand angel up there. But Gabriel's a pretty big deal, okay? He's a pretty big deal. And so we know that he's about to move because he comes down. And where does he come and who does he talk to? But he talks to a man who loves the Lord, who is a part of the remnant, who's still worshiping the Lord, who's probably really excited because on this day he gets to go and he gets to... Um, uh, is it light the incense? But uh, the, anyway, he gets to go into the temple, if he's, and, and he gets to be there, and so he goes into the temple, and Gabriel appeals to him. And what he says is going to be the start of the whole next stage of redemptive history. And I have to wonder, what was that like? Like, I mean, if I'm Gabriel, I mean, was God, like, so excited to tell him? And, like, what was he thinking? I, I, like, I get to go down, and I get to be the one that, you know, starts this. I mean, he had been so excited, Right? Um, to come down there and, and to start everything that's going to be happening. But um, anyway, so what he says is extremely significant, and I have that written down on your little notes there so you can read it with me. And we are going to, um, we are going to go through this line by line because this prophecy is extremely important. And what I want you to see first and foremost, that what Gabriel is going to say is going to pick up exactly where Malachi left off. So the last thing he said is exactly where he's going to pick up. And we would not have this if it was not for the book of Luke, okay? Um, and so it starts off, and, and uh, Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife is going to have a child. We know that this child is going to be John the Baptist. And he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Something I want to point out is that this is different a different word than what Paul talks about, being filled like in sanctification. This is actually what's called a theocratic anointing. So it's a special filling for a specific purpose or a task. Um, it's also the same word that's used in Pentecost when Stephen, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. So um, this, is, this is very significant. We know that it happened from birth because of how he jumps in the womb with Elizabeth and Mary. Um, and then it tells us that he is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, all right? Now I want us to go all the way back and think of Deuteronomy 30, all right? Remember when um, he's talking to Moses and he tells them, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind uh, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice, and all I command you with all your heart and soul, then the Lord will bring you back. And here's, here's what you want you to focus on. And he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is repentance. This is a, what's about to happen, all right? This is the emphasis. God is bringing them back. This is Deuteronomy 30 and so many things being fulfilled. And, and, and next he says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, According to Abner Chow, he is going to be like Elijah in his nature, okay, so the things that he, that comes through his ministry, and in the results and the dynamic effectiveness of his ministry. So we're going to see it produce fruit, okay? We don't have to wonder what happened from his life. We, we know that it's going to produce fruit. The Word of God has just told us it's going to happen. Um, that will be affirmed later on when we see fruit. Um, but this is tied perfectly back. That word Elijah should have tied them back to the last time God spoke. This is the moment where he is picking up where he left off and he's entering in. We know what is to come next. 
Next, it says that he is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So preparation is the word I want you to focus on. This was John's objective, all right? This is Malachi 3.1, which is talking about John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Also, Isaiah 43.5, a voice cried in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Where was where was John the Baptist? He was in the wilderness. This is all tying in. But how is he going to prepare them? It's going to be repentance. And it's all going to tie in. Matthew Henry says, When sin is made grievous, Christ is made most precious. And isn't that the truth? Have you ever had a season of your life where you just, you, the Lord just convicts you and you just weep over your sin and you just get it? I'm just like, Lord, bring that upon me. Like, I want to walk in repentance because that, that is the doorway to knowing you. Anytime I've had a counter in the Lord, it's always preceded some kind of him just, just laying down on my life and convicting me or things or putting circumstances to show me my ma- nasty heart. And I'm like, Lord, whatever it takes, like, I want to know you. And this is what the Lord is doing with John the Baptist. And he comes in and he is, he is confrontive and he's telling them what they're doing wrong. He's pointing out the Pharisees. He's dealing with their hearts. And here's the thing is that Christ is going to pick up exactly where John the Baptist leaves off and he's going to dive right into their hearts. And all of Luke is digging at the heart, the circumcision of the heart, loving your Lord your God, and then his life is going to show us exactly what that looks like. Now we know from Malachi that as soon as Elijah comes, then we're going to have the Christ. So this should have been a sign to them of what's going to happen right next, and bam, we have it. It's Mary, our next character in our story. Now Gabriel comes to Nazareth, and he appears to Mary. What's significant here is he just came to temple, and now he's coming to Nazareth. Why is that a big deal? Because Nazareth is a town that's surrounded by Gentiles, and it is a po-dunk town. Remember Nathaniel? He says, what good could there ever come out of Nazareth? Who would come from this place, okay? Nazareth, to be a Nazarene was the same as to be despised or to be esteemed of low birth, all right? That is what it is. It was a small farming village. It's high on a hill far away from many trade routes, and therefore it was likely an impoverished town. So Mary is not rich. These are not wealthy people. This makes no sense that he would come here, but Gabriel comes with the same excitement as he came to the temple as he comes to Nazareth. He's just as excited, and it's an even bigger deal, and it doesn't matter to him. God is changing everything we know about esteem and everything we value in this world just by showing up in Nazareth, and later we're going to see him showing up in a manger, but it's, it is so profound. The other thing is that this location was prophesied. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would come from Nazareth 600 years before the village even existed. Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. One commentator noted that whenever there is a reference to the messianic branch or shoot, it is always a reference to the fallen house of David whose demise is always linked to the exile. So to say this is going to happen, this, this, is a, th- this is going to be the branch. We know, what we know at this point, is that the hope of the Davidic Empire is, um, is over for those who are wor- looking at this, wor- this world horizontally. So like they're looking at this world and they're like, our hope is over. We just totally messed this up. God's not even talking to us anymore. They've taken things in their own hands. Um, politically, Herod has made Judea a providence of the empire. They don't have any civil liberties. All of them have been lost, and Israel is technically, again, enslaved in many ways, okay? So this branch shooting up 
all right, is going to be a sign of the regathering under of the exiles under the Davidic leadership. That is what is happening. So when this branch shoots up, it is going to be the end of the exile. So I know you're in exile. This is going to be the end of it. According to Abner Chow, there's a reason God puts him in Nazareth. Jesus is going to be born in the midst of exile in order to break it. As a believer, I can tell you, and you know this too, that we understand just like heaven. It's like, it's like we don't have heaven yet, but we know it's, we know it's here now because we, we taste and see the Lord is good. We're still experiencing the fallout of the exile, but the exile is, has, is, is over for us in the sense that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We know what's to come. This is the beginning of the end for us, okay? And, and what's happening here is, is he's coming to Nazareth to say, come on, come with me. This is the end of the exile. So if you're in Christ, we are on our way. Like we are, we are in the exile kind of, but not of it. That's what's going on. And so the angel is going to say this to Mary. And let me tell you something. She was a remnant. She understood this. When he said this to her, she would have known exactly what it meant. And he says, this child of yours will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. She would have gotten this. How do we know that this is the beginning of the end of the exile? Because the angel is coming to Mary and he's saying, this is your son. This is your son. 2 Samuel 7, 12-14 says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Here's some things you need to know. This son, we know, will be given the throne of David. We know the son, that whoever sits on this throne of David is going to fulfill all the other covenants, if you can take the throne of God, then you are God's. In him, all the nations will be blessed. And who are the nations? We. We are the nations. We are here today. I'm standing here because this baby came. I am grafted in. We are the nations. We should not be here. This is a miracle in and of itself. Thank you, Jesus. And unlike any ruler before, his reign is going to last forever. From Brian's sermon a few weeks ago, he said, we need a king that only God can produce. Isn't that the truth? Every single leader we have fails us again and again. Do they not? I'm so done with it. I'm just glad. I'm like, you know, Jesus is my king. <laughs> Y'all can do what you want. No, that's not fully true. But um, So I'm going to uh, focus on the virgin birth, birth for just a moment. So it says in Isaiah 7:14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called the significance of the virgin birth is something I want to pull in just for a moment. Isaiah 43, 19. I've had a lot of, heard a lot of people use this verse um, to say, you know, the Lord's going to do a new thing, a new thing. There's only one real intended meaning for this verse, and it was a reference to the new covenant. So see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness. And streams in the wasteland. Who does that remind you of? You cannot see nor experience a greater thing to experience the new covenant. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them, remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. We are this fulfillment. 
So God is going to initiate a new covenant through this new birth. That is the significance of it. Something I wanted to point out is that that verse when it says, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This isn't just like a feel-good scripture thing that we hear, and I think sometimes we gloss over it. But because of this new birth, we are physically new. A dark time in my life, I've had quite a few, but I just was so in so much bondage, Lord, I don't, I don't feel new. I don't feel, I know that I'm a Christian, I know I'm a believer, but, but when I am with you, where's my significance? Sarah, you're dead. You're dead. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. In Christ, you died. In me, you are new. This all happens because of the new birth. We are new in Christ, alive because of this virgin birth. This is made possible. In his resurrection, there's going to be life, but it's made possible, and this is one of your little lines on there, through a new Adam. This would also be referred to the second Adam, because this is a, or an uncorrupt seed. Okay? It's very significant as we move forward into the new covenant. This, the first seed was corrupted by sin, but this one is born of God. It's uncorrupt. Okay? That is the new covenant. That is Christ in us. So Mary's response to this news is the Magnificant. If you've heard Hannah's prayer, it's very similar to that. It was a thousand years before. It's likely that Mary would have known it, but this was an inspired something that she was able to express what she could not have formulated on her own. Prophecy is both looks forward, it predicts, and it also gives weight to uh, what is currently happening, or what God, or, or I'm sorry, not what is happening, but um, to proclaim. It's not just a looking forward, but it's, it's also a proclamation, and that is what's happening here. Hannah was the Samuel's mother, and her son would prepare the way for earthly kings, and Mary's son is the king. And now we have the birth of John the Baptist. When he's born, Zachariah is able to talk again. And I think I'm going to read that. You got to hear 11.45 or 12. Okay, thank you. All right. So what I want to say here is, you know how you watch a play, and uh, before the curtains are raised, the orchestra kind of comes down at the very beginning, and they, they start playing. It's like a crescendo, and then they, and then they pull the, like, it always has to be a little bit of anticipation before they pull those curtains. It's kind of like all the other gospels. Pull the curtains back where the birth happens, Right? Luke comes right before that. And I, I feel like this prophecy of Zechariah is almost like a crescendo before the curtains are pulled and that baby is born. That's what this feels like to me. At the end of his prophecy, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this is talking about John the Baptist, to give him knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the baby that's about to be born. And then he is born. I want you to remember that this is the most darkest of times in Israel's history, but it's about to become the most joyful. Matthew Henry, because I I don't know how to describe Christ's birth. I just feel like I just insult him because I can't even talk about it really good, but he does a good job. He says, um, the everlasting father became a child of time. He that makes darkness a swaddling band for the sea was himself in swaddling bands 
the Ancient of Days became an infant of a span long. The son of David, that was the glory of his father's house, had no inheritance that he could command. And when Christ humbled himself and took on flesh and was born in that manger, God exalted him in those heavenlies. Like I think of all the people, we all got together and we were all there for that birth. We, we couldn't even touch the exaltation that he needed. But that wasn't the point. I think he was breaking into our world in the humblest of ways in order to break and change everything that we understand about God in every way that everything he would want to do is just, just going to be different than we think. And he's saying, let me show you who I am. I don't care about all that stuff. And he's born in this major and, and the, the angels are there. He's making sure that that baby is exalted on that day, let me tell you. And we will be praising him for all of eternity, so his glory will not fall short. Shortly after he is born, they take him to the temple. This is one of my favorite parts in all of scripture. To remind you again, first temple was in Jerusalem. It was Solomon's temple. We talked about that earlier. After that, the second temple, this is Zerubbabel's temple in 515 BC, and then the third temple was Herod's temple. They're at that site. It's the same site, but it's remodeled. At this point, it's still been under construction uh, for uh, 30 to 50 years. Um, I'm not the best at math, uh, but it was finally completed in 63 or 64 AD. But the temple, if you remember in the Old Testament, there were two main things that it was supposed to be. Number one, it was the glory of Israel. It was saying, this is our God. Come here. All the nations can come here. This is our God. This is where we meet with him. It's where the Shekinah glory was. It was meant to be a light to the nations. That's what the Israelites were supposed to do. So the temple served that purpose. So they looked toward this house. It was a place of worship in response and a place of prayer. This was a place that this pointed their relationship with God. It set them apart from everyone else, but they rejected God by not obeying his commands in the Old Covenant. And this hurt God. So the Spirit left. The presence of God, we watch in Ezekiel as it, it literally, even before the destruction, he, he was sad and Israel had broken his heart. This is a person. This isn't, like, like he was hurt. That was the Spirit in which he left. So he leaves the temple, and this is the first time right here that the glory of Israel returns to that place. That is where he is. And I love it because this is where Simeon, God always has a witness, doesn't he? And I love the witnesses he picks. This is a man that wanted to see the Lord's Lord return. He had been promised that it was going to be there. And Simeon prophesies of him. What does he say? A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people, Israel. Exactly what the temple was meant to be is the prophecy that he prophesies over this child. They look toward the temple, but we look toward Christ. The whole world would fundamentally change for the rest of time. God was working one way, and now it is going to be different. And how is this going to be different with this baby? It's going to look, everything's going to be different. And that's next week. That's why it's so much fun. Discipleship. It's going to be a matter of the heart. We're going to see what the new covenant looks like. And it is all about his glory still. We are completely dependent on him. Next week is going to be about the themes. It's about God himself. It's about his glory. This is why he came. And I'm so excited to go there next week. And with that, somehow, miraculously, I have ended at 11.45. So all a miracle. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> all right. Dear God, thank you so much that you tie everything together. God, we can do nothing without you. 
God, we are nothing without you. We wouldn't be here today without you, and that baby means everything to us. The baby that presented himself, or the, that was presented in that temple, has, his life is now permeated in our lives, and we are that temple. God, I pray this week that these words would become alive to us, and they would be a light, and we would walk in your ways, that we could be a light to the nations. For, your good, for our good and for your glory, we give you all the praise in your name. Amen.